1: For more information on our product line, visit FullyLoadedChew.com. You're listening to the Average Conservationist Podcast brought to you in partner with 2% for Conservation. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their community for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's (laughs) fishandwildlife.org. Ladies and gentlemen, happy hump day. Welcome back to another episode of the Average Conservationist Podcast, and I'm your host, Marcus Ewing. Today on the podcast, I am joined by Jared Souza, and Jared is the co-founder of 2% Certified Turkey Track Outfitters, and contrary to what uh, the name kind of implies, uh, Turkey Track Outfitters uh, operating out of Wyoming, actually um, offers guided hunts for... Gosh, most uh, big game species, uh, including though, uh, turkeys are in there in the spring. They do some predator hunts. Uh, I do believe some waterfowl as well. Um, and then, you know, kind of your your big three, big four, antelope, elk, uh, mule deer, whitetail deer. Uh, it's really kind of a one-stop shop um, <clears throat> if you're looking uh, to kind of experience that Western hunting. Uh, But no, Jared and I have a really cool conversation. Uh, We get to talk about, you know, how uh, Jared um, and his father started uh, Tricky Track Outfitters uh, some 15 years ago. Uh, Jared uh, tells uh, a really cool story about an experience that he had uh, when he was out uh, in the mountains a few years back um, that I'm not even going to... Uh, Ethan tease other than it's a really cool story and, you, and you're definitely going to want to make sure you tune in uh, to listen to it uh, and then along with that though Jared and I get into you know his upbringing in the outdoors you know what life is like as a guide trying to um, you know kind of balance um, you know the the great unit that they're guiding in, as well as uh, kind of manage client expectations, um, you know, when, when going out, uh, you know, how difficult uh, it can kind of be to draw a tag in the unit that uh, that they're guiding in and, you know, what conservation means to them as a company and how, you know, they've really approached it. And, you know, what conservation uh, has really meant to him um, since a young age, um, growing up on ranches uh, in the West and and having, you know, really the whole outdoors um, be a big part of his life. And also how he hopes to, um, you know, kind of instill that into his kids as well. So super fun episode. Uh, Like I said, some good stories in there. So uh, you're definitely going to want to listen to this one. So episode 94, Jared Souza. uh, Enjoy. Uh, Let's see, today's episode is going to be brought to you by my good friends, Sammy and Marshall at Wild Rivers Coffee. Uh, Wild Rivers Coffee is roasting in small batches so that they can ensure that your coffee arrives at its peak freshness. Wild Rivers is also a proud partner with 2% for Conservation. Uh, That's why with everything they sell, a portion of the proceeds are being donated back to conservation organizations that are near and dear to them. So you're going to get groups like Trout Unlimited, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, Ducks Unlimited and the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. So head over to wildriverscoffeeco.com, order your fresh roasted beans, some sweet merchandise, handmade mugs, a uh, ton of accessories for grinding uh, your own coffee, doing some pour over stuff, uh, however you like to enjoy it. Uh, use the code, and this is all caps, fish underscore wildlife, and you're going to save 15% off your order. Or if you subscribe today to their um, uh coffee subscription you're going to save 10 percent off your order as well so again head over to WildRiversCoffeeCo.com. all right with me on the line today is the co-founder of two percent certified turkey track outfitters jared souza jared how are you
0: oh good yourself
1: i'm doing well it's uh i say i'm in michigan here uh, but today is kind of it's almost 70 degrees which is the warmest day by far that we've had uh yet this year uh and it feels like it feels like spring is here so uh i'm looking out my office window here and uh quite honestly i'm enjoying it
0: yeah for sure we're uh we're starting to see some warm-ups in our neck of the woods and a little little bit of uh green grass starting to sprig up here and there but uh i think yesterday we were in the fifties and then woke up this morning again to a couple inches of snow, but, uh, um, spring, spring's coming it's right around the corner.
1: Yeah. It's not often you say, yeah, I woke up to two inches of snow this morning, but spring's on its way. I can feel it. Right.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's, uh, I, I imagine we have a, a few more days where it's probably some sub zero temperatures yet again, before we're over with all this, all this winter stuff. But, uh, but we need the moisture. So hopefully we get a couple more snowstorms before it gets too green.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, just this past weekend, uh, we did a little kind of, it was when we planned it, it was supposed to be like this, uh, spring ski trip, um, to, uh, the UP here in Michigan. Uh, my, my family, and then, uh, a bunch of other, you know, friends of ours that have families as well. We decided to do it and, Or thought, you know, oh, it's going to be great. We're going to get this nice, you know, probably skiing in the 30s, you know, temperature wise and sunny and it'll be beautiful and it'll just be a great weekend away. And it was the complete opposite. It was cold. I mean, it was, you know, single digits to around zero at night. I think it got, you know, a high of like 20 degrees with like 15 mile an hour winds. And we're all out there with, you know, young kids. I mean, I think between the five families I went, the oldest kid was maybe 10. So the, uh, the the spring ski trip uh, was not exactly as uh, we had anticipated going into the weekend.
0: <laughs> the kids weren't enjoying it as much.
1: No, as no, not at all. Us. Yeah. <laughs> so, Jared, let's kind of jump right into things here. Tell me about Turkey Track Outfitters. How did you guys get started? You know, what all you guys are offering and all the good stuff there.
0: Yeah, so, uh, you know, Turkey Track Outfitters kind of came about from, uh, you know, we both my dad and myself come up come from a ranching background he's always been uh involved but managing ranches um kind of all over wyoming you know and always had a strong desire i guess for the the outdoors and, and hunting and that kind of stuff and uh we uh right after college i had the opportunity to come back to work for the one of the ranches he was managing um that was you know well positioned for uh a commercial hunting operation, um, was utilized just by, uh, you know, the owner's family. And then the the remainder wasn't, was an untapped resource. Um, and so we had an opportunity through that owner as far as part of our employment to start an outfitting business and kind of, I guess, uh, help with our, our salary or the money that we were able to make on a, on a yearly basis. So, um, we started the outfitting business, um you know when it was a kind of a slow rough start um it was right after uh you know some of the preference point situations were uh, adopted in wyoming and um so we were having to deal with you know trying to get clientele and stuff so we kind of started slow and then finally uh i guess made a name for ourselves and um what's really crazy is you know turkey track outfitters you would you would assume that we specialize in uh in turkey hunts um and we do 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 a number of turkey hunts, but, uh, really our, our bread and butter butter is, uh, is elk hunting. Um, and we're in, uh, you know, area seven, which is one of the best areas in the state. Um, it's taking uh non residents you know, anywhere from 11 to 12 points now to draw, but it's a really, really good trophy unit. And that's kind of what, what got us our name and, uh, and well-positioned in the industry, I guess.
1: So. so you, you mentioned in Wyoming, are you in Wyoming or are you in Montana? Uh, where are you guys no, at?
0: No, I'm, uh, um, I live in a Southeastern Wyoming, um, right in between, uh, Cheyenne and Casper along that I-25 corridor in a little town called Wheatland.
1: Okay. Wheatland, Wyoming. Right on. So you mentioned that the ranch that you guys kind of started on, you know, there was a, a good portion of it that wasn't, um, area was, it was well positioned and it wasn't really being utilized, uh, for, for hunting purposes. How, how big of a ranch are we talking about here?
0: Yeah. So that ranch was, uh, just shy of 14,000 acres, um, in Southeast Wyoming. And it was unique. It was on, uh, you know, what they call Cottonwood Creek. And it was, uh, that area is just a great area. There's a lot of turkeys, a lot of white tail, a good number of mule deer. And then we had a, you know, an ever expanding elk herd that had some incredible bulls in there, you know, cause it was, it was in, uh, area seven, which is a limited quota area. And, uh, you know, we had the, the opportunity to harvest a number of elk off of that ranch and in that duration with that owner, um, you know, that we're pushing that 400 number. So, um, it was really, really good recreational property, I guess.
1: Yeah. Now, being in unit seven there and I'm not, I mean, being a Midwest guy, I mean, I don't uh, know. I mean, I know how, you know, the preference points and, and draws and, and things like that work, but now since you guys are, are you're correct me if I'm wrong. You're guiding still on that ranch and on private land, correct?
0: You know, since, since that time we've, uh, we've moved on to some other properties um, in seven. So we're not on the, okay on the ranch that we, we got our start on. Um, that, that place had sold a, a number of years ago and, and we kind of moved on, moved on from there. And I, uh, you know, my, my dad's still in the, in the ranch management business and still participates in the, the outfitting business. But since, uh, since then my role has changed quite a bit and I'm, uh, I've been full time in the, the ranch and recreational property market for, you know, the last 10 years, I guess.
1: So, Okay. Now with if if you're guiding on private land there and you know someone comes from out of state do they still need the preference points or is it like a landowner tag or something like that so someone who maybe only has you know let's say two or three preference preference points um can they still come and hunt there or how does that work
0: Yeah so um Wyoming's unique in the sense that there's no uh there's no landowner Tags. There is some landowner tags, but they're available to the landowners or direct next to kin. So there's no
1: uh okay. commercial
0: availability of of tags. Um, I mean, it's you know the on a year to year basis. Typically, what occurs is you know I, I don't really talk to any hunters unless they have near max points because unfortunately they're just uh you know they're not going to draw a tag. The likelihood of them drawing a tag's pretty limited. So I I uh, I work through a you know, a couple of booking agents as well as, you know, spend a lot of time with our marketing to hopefully be able to reach out to them guys that are holding, you know, ten plus points and them are the guys I want to put on my books. Yeah, yeah, so no, absolutely.
1: I mean. You mentioned something there that obviously with the name of the outfitting business there, I had it, you know, just in, you know, looking on um percent's website on fish and there and and seeing obviously all the the certified brands and, and businesses because i spend a lot of time on there obviously trying to figure out you know guests and whatnot to come on the podcast and at, honestly that's what i thought i was like oh they're you know they're a turkey outfitter like they're you know they guide for for turkey hunts and then obviously um do you know i do a little bit of research and you know i was checking out the website and and yeah you guys are are really kind of a, a one-stop shop for gosh almost anything that that you want to pursue out west
0: yeah you know it's uh we're, we're fortunate we're, we're in a, an area that has a you know a good number of big game kind of from you know whitetail to, to elk so we're very fortunate in that aspect um and then you know southeastern wyoming and in, in general has very very limited uh public land and public opportunities so obviously a Um, you know most of the ranches whether you like it or not have kind of adopted uh you know an outfitting strategy or a leasing strategy to supplement their their income and and help with you know paying the bill so we've uh we're positioned pretty well in that regard and you know there's a lot of good outfitters in the area too i mean seven's uh you know that's one of the largest elk areas in the state and there's a there's a lot of guys that make you know make their living um, guiding elk hunts in in this part of the world so
1: yeah no for sure how many uh, hunters do you guys take out a year uh, during elk season I mean I know elk season for a lot of western states you know starts in September uh, you know and then can run you know all the way close to the end of the year depending upon um, you know rifle and and things like that so how what would you what would you say is probably an average number of hunters you get out
0: yeah, so we, uh, we operate in two different areas. We operate in uh, Area 7 as well as a, a, general, a general unit as well. And, uh, you know, typically we take about 16 hunters collectively and, and them two, two units. Um, the unique part about, you know, our operation is we've, we've had the opportunity to expand um, on a number of occasions, but we're, we kind of want to stay as kind of a mom-and-pop shop, um, my dad or myself primarily guide, you know, 95% of all the hunters that come to Turkey track outfitters. We have, we have all the control on that that aspect. You know, we don't, we don't, we're not hiring guides um, on a yearly basis or anything. We handle all the, all the hunting for every one of our clients.
1: Okay. Yeah. That's got it. And I like that idea of, you know, not scaling, even though the opportunity presents itself because you want to, you know, maintain that control Um, you know, you want to keep that, that mom and pop, you know, feel. And I think, you know, especially for, for a lot of people who are, you know, putting down, you know, a good chunk of money and, and, you know, burning, you know, 10 years worth of, uh, preference points, you know, they want to, they want to have that experience with someone who, you know, knows the land, um, you know, as well as anyone does, you know, they know the herds. Uh, you know they they know what to expect because it's what they do. It's not just um, you know a company or an outfitting service that, like you said, maybe has you know four or five different guides and you know it's you, you don't know who you're going to get. Um, you know you I, I'd imagine by the time um, a hunter shows up, you know you've had a lot of conversations with with them. You know what to expect, what to pack. You know the whole nine yards. So there's this uh, you know comfort level built up with the hunter um, and then. know the the relationship has already started and that's probably something that a lot of people really enjoy about the experience
0: yeah for sure and you know especially with the the preference point situation there's um there's a lot of these guys that are are booking that you know especially that area seven hunt where i mean it's we kind of treat it as a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity because the likelihood of them drawing that tag again is is very very limited you know so essentially for i would say a good percentage of our hunters you're there you know they're in that upper age group and you know there's probably 60 plus where they they have the financial resources that come on some of these hunts and then on top of that you got the preference point situation where they, they may never draw that tag ever again so we kind of treat it as a as a once in a lifetime deal and you know it's for most of our clients they they appreciate that and um and it comes with some unique, uh, circumstances that surround that, I guess, you know, you gotta, you gotta kind of handle it a little bit different.
1: Yeah. And, and how, I guess, stressful or, you know, on, on the, the side of you and your dad there, um, with, you know, wanting to make sure that, you know, they have these opportunities and, you know, anyone who's hunted for any amount of time knows that nothing is guaranteed when it comes to hunting. I mean, that's, that's why they call it hunting. Right. And but I'd imagine there's, you know, probably some levels of expectation from the hunter coming in, you know, knowing the unit, uh, and things like that. So is it kind of tricky for you guys to kind of help temper that expectation a little bit, but then also make sure that you're giving them, you know, or, or putting them in, in every opportunity possible.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, um, that's difficult sometimes. I mean, you got, especially as we, we built our business and built our reputation. So a lot of, uh, the guarantees that are being passed around may not have came from myself nor my dad, you know, um, they might've came from some blog or something with somebody that's, um, hunted with us previously. But, uh, you know, kind of my stance on that is, you know, I just, I try not to guarantee anything except for that we'll work as hard as we can to make sure they have a successful, successful hunt, you know, cause we've, um, through, our career of, of guiding and outfitting hunters we've seen, we've seen everything. I mean, in, in 2012, you know, 99% of all our, our leases were on fire and we had a full full stack of hunters coming in that year. And, you know, we were able to kind of navigate through there and had some successful trips. And, uh, you know, the, the great thing about after 2012 and, and having all our leases burn up after I thought I was done. I thought we were probably out of business that year after all that happened, but we figured out a way and, and kept all our hunters on the schedule and all of them had a successful trip. And after we kind of navigated them waters, I was like, you know what, if we could, if we could make it through that, that year, I'm pretty sure that we could we can handle anything that's thrown at us from now on, you know? So,
1: um, yeah, how far out in advance are you? Are you booking clients? Uh, I guess more specifically for the the elk side of things.
0: Yeah, we're we're normally uh, a couple years out, um, especially on our trophy unit. Now, our general unit, you know, it, we kind of book it on a on a year to year basis um, for the most part. But our our area seven stuff's booked out now, usually a couple years out.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I I was gonna say I would imagine that with a with a unit like that and and what comes with it. Yeah, you're. You're not getting a guy that's calling you in in June or July saying, "Hey, do you have any availability? I've uh, I think I'm going to try to you know burn my points this year." I'd imagine that, um, you know, the the hunter side of it are, are looking, you know, it's something that they've been planning for a long time or saving up for as well. So yeah, I, it, that that doesn't surprise me to to hear that things are a few years out for, especially for that unit seven. Yeah. So now, what about? Like the the mule deer side of things or the antelope, is that more on a year to year basis? Or I mean, are you still having to? Are people still having to to cash in a, a ton of preference points for for those animals as well?
0: Yeah, not so much. I mean, uh, you know, our, our, our mule deer and antelope tags are
1: are pretty available. Um, you know,
0: normally uh, a non resident can apply for them and and draw them pretty easily. Um, the antelope deals changed a little bit. There's been some tag reductions in in our area, so now it's taken maybe you know two points um, to draw that tag. But uh, historically, it's been pretty easy. I mean, you, you could call me up, and if I had a spot, we could probably get you a tag. You know.
1: Okay. Now, you mentioned you know wanting to to stay that that mom and top mom and pop size, you know. Uh, outfit, you know, what would you say, you know, in in your, you know, almost 15 years of, of running uh, Turkey track outfitters, what would you say that is what, let me start over. Jeez. What would you say really separates you guys from a lot of the other outfitters uh, that are kind of working in your area?
0: Uh, Yeah, that's a, that's a tough question. I mean, you know, I'll be the first to acknowledge that, you know, our competitors out there, that still exist in area seven they're they're real good outfits and they're you know they run a tight ship i guess and uh i have them conversations with hunters you know potential clients all the time they always want me to position myself against one of our competitors and i you know i'm the first to say like look you know it's uh the competitors that i'm worried about run a very very tight ship and they're probably just as equally successful on the hunting side of things uh, as we are. Um, I guess the only, the only thing that I normally bring up that, you know, I can guarantee you separates myself from, from anybody else is, uh, you know, just the amount of work we're willing to put in and how, I guess how close to the chest I, I treat each and every one of these hunts. I mean, I, I'm stressed out beyond belief the entire hunting season because i know these guys spent a lot of money they got a lot of time invested and i try to do everything in my power to make sure they have a smile on their face on a day-to-day basis you know from and you know guiding guiding hunters goes more than just your ability to find and locate and stock animals like here's a there's a big picture situation associated with that where you make Hunters comfortable in uncomfortable situations, you know, like you're sitting on the side of a mountain for eight hours, glassing for you know a single bull, and you're getting blasted in the face with seventy-five mile an hour winds. Like, how do you maintain a relationship sitting next to somebody while that's occurring? You know, because at at the end of the day, everyone's hunting for for more than just the opportunity to put their hands on uh, a set of antlers. You know, there's more to it than that. I mean that that little moment of time only lasts a very little while right and you know 20 years from now when you look at that elk on your wall you don't remember that the second he fell in front of you and you put your hands on him you remember the whole the whole
1: routine you
0: know every part of it yeah
1: and that's <clears throat> that's one of the things that that uh i like about hearing people talk about you know different hunting experiences is you know the the harvest the kill i mean that's just such a small portion of you know the big picture and it's it's more about the journey i guess you know the like you said the the glassing for 8 hours on this knob or something just getting busted in the face with wind or you know possibly rain or snow or whatever the case is but all those things you know go into to making the experience that much better and i think that that's one thing that maybe people um that don't hunt or um yeah that, that just don't hunt they don't they don't really, they don't understand that they don't appreciate um you know the the level of respect uh that us as hunters and conservationists have for the entire process and not just you know the kill
0: yeah i mean it's you know after i don't know how many total elk hunters we've taken or hunters period i mean we've we've taken a good number of hunters over the last you know, 15 years, but, uh, you know, I'll have a call sometimes from a, you know, a previous client that I haven't talked to in in several years. And while I may not recognize his name immediately, if I start, it might take me a second to kind of put all the pieces of the puzzle together. But once I do that, I mean, I could sit down and I can almost remember how that entire week unfolded. And, you know, that's what kind of keeps me Going in the outfitting business is, you know, I appreciate that part. I mean, I've had some unique experiences and some incredible exposures to the outdoors that I wouldn't normally have had. Just, just being a weekend warrior, you know, just, just having the opportunity to, to spend almost seventy or eighty days out in the field a year, and having all of them unique experiences is kind of what gets keeps me in the outfitting business, you know, and, and wanting to guide more and more hunters. As yeah. my body starts failing from uh, packing out so many elk <laughs> over
1: <laughs> the last 15 years, you know? <laughs> yeah. So over the last 15 years, are there a few experiences or memorable hunts that really kind of stand out for you?
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, there's some, we've had some incredible experiences. Uh, you know, I had one one real unique encounter with a, a mountain lion um you know, i'll have a hard time dating it but i'll you know it, it was several years ago we had a we had a hunter that was you know I, I guess i'll back up a little bit you know one one of the implications or or hurdles as far as guiding hunters is uh you know each each client that we have they obviously have the financial resources and the point accumulation to to draw these these tags but you know the the physical abilities of each and every one of these hunters is is very unique you know you're normally dealing with a you know older an older clientele that you know might have had a knee replacement or a hip replacement and then you're you're trying to accomplish things in a in some rough country and so as a guide you know you always got a you always got to fill out your client the first day or two and understand what he's capable of and whether whether he has some physical limitations or whether he has some mental limitations and how far you can push him to try to be successful so that's always you know your biggest hurdle when we we set out with the client for the first day of their 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 trip you know um that being said so we you know you can talk to all these guys on the phone and try to get them prepped up some guys you know go to the nth degree and they're in triathlete shape by the time they show up and other guys kind of took what you said for granted and they just assume that <laughs> it's just another walk in the park you know yeah. um so i to say you know what we we have his hunter shows up to camp i can tell you know he's a younger younger guy he's been on a lot of elk hunts he's he's a go-getter he's just he's more there like yeah if we can kill a, a big bull great but he just wants to just hunt you know and he wants to hunt as hard as possible so we start we start hunting hard and we start pushing on some you know some country that we normally don't get into with a lot of our clientele because it's a it's a big hike and it's not fun you know um and we get up into this this pocket we get into some bulls and um we find kind of the target elk that we end up going after for the next few days. But meanwhile, the temperatures come up and, you know, we have some unseasonably high temperatures in the mid seventies. And, you know, when we're pushing the, like the second week in November, so these elk kind of disappear on us. So we're really having to kind of go out and beat the bush and trying to find this, this elk. And uh, so that's, so anyways, that's what we're doing. We're, We're hunting hard and we're in the middle of the day just, kind of pushing, pushing some country. And we come across this uh, little Aspen stand. And uh, as soon as we come into it, I really recognize that, you know, the, there's no wind in it. It's obviously cooler. And I'm like, Hey, look, you know, there's a lot of fresh elk sign. And this is one patch of trees we haven't been able to see from anywhere we've been positioned before. I was like, we need to be very, very careful as we move through here. So we're kind of moving through this little Aspen stand really stealthy and uh I see this flash of brown in front of me so I you know I signal my hunter to get down and we crouch down and I can see this something brown running through the running through the trees and then all of a sudden it gets to the edge of the trees and I watch it flip and I see a long tail and I was like that you know there's a mountain lion and it's you know 100 yards in front of us so I'm I'm like okay I was like that's cool there's a mountain lion but I was like i it's wrestling you can hear it growling and wrestling around on the ground i thought it must have just killed an elk right in front of us and i was like holy crap this is really cool so you know i'd throw my backpack off and get my camera out and start slithering through the grass to try to get a better position to take some photos of this mountain lion and while we do that I get a little closer. We're, you know, probably 90 to 100 yards away now, and I got a big zoom lens on my camera, and I figure out that what she's wrestling with is two kittens. Oh, wow. And so I I get some pretty awesome pictures. You know, they're not super, super tight by any means. She's still out there 100 yards, but we got, you know, pictures of her wrestling and growling at her kitten and her her kitten staring at her growling at her and see really awesome pictures well in the meantime the wind kind of switched switched and came up her back and she winded us and it was really unique because soon as she winded us like she made this little chirping noise and them kittens just disappeared and then she crouched down and you know staring our direction and she starts kind of just slowly crawling towards us and i'm i'm still taking pictures at this time you know so she goes from a hunter to probably 80 yards and i'm still taking pictures my hunter's behind me he's taking pictures and then uh then she gets i don't know she's probably you know 60 yards by now and she's still slithering through the grass and i thought it was kind of comical because i was like you know she thinks she's hidden from us but i was like she's right out in the wide open. Like I can see her every move, you know, well, I decide that she's probably got close enough and I should probably stand up because I was in a, you know, I was hiding in the grass myself. And so I stand up and you watch her facial expression kind of change. And I was like, well, she's going to run away. She just sits there. So I was like, all right, well, I, I grab a rock and I throw it at her and holler at her. And it lands, you know, it lands too close in between her, and uh she jumps up and is at a full dead charge at my hunter and myself and you know the the panic sets in then because, you know we're we're scrambling and uh the the crazy thing is is we had, I'd been hunting they were towards the tail end of the season, so I started dropping things off my pack because my legs were starting to get pretty beat up, and I remember sitting my my forty four mag on the breakfast table. When I was unloading my pack that morning. Oh, no. And I never put it back in my pack. So I'm reaching for my sidearm and it's not there. You know, he's packing an eight millimeter with a, you know, a six by 24 scope. And she's uh, at this point 50 yards and closing at a high rate of speed. And we're, you know, we're panicked. We're, uh, as grown men, we're, we were falling <laughs> apart as, as much as two grown men can fall apart. And uh, she's run, run, run. And right between, us and her, there's this little depression where she's going to disappear for a little bit. And when she's going to show back up, she's going to be five yards from us, you know? Oh boy. She disappears into that depression. And I was like, I was like, you better shoot her. As soon as she comes, comes out of that depression and she comes flying out of that depression. And soon as she does, I mean, she's literally five, five yards away from us. I, I made a quick call and I, you know, I basically kind of hit my hunter's arm and I said, don't shoot, don't shoot. And I just watched her. She's kind of stocked like a cutting horse sat on her heels. And I just watched her face change and we stood there and stared at each other for a second. And then she turned around and walked off. And then uh, the interesting part of that, like we were, you know, we had more adrenaline going through us. We had a hard time standing up, but she walked away and she got back out to where her kittens were she made another chirp again them kittens run up get below her and she literally walked as slow as a lion can walk all the way away from us until she disappeared over the horizon and not a single time ever looked over her shoulder to make sure we weren't a threat again and i'm like she just gave us a a free ticket you know i mean we were dead to rights if she if she wanted to honestly pounce on one of us he was we could have got ripped up real easily you know but i to this day I'm so thankful that that we didn't pull the trigger and uh I made that call right then even though it, I would have felt really bad if it was the wrong call and one of us would have got skimmed up some but uh there was just something that told me as soon as she came out of there and she was face to face with us that she was she was just posturing you know she didn't need to die necessarily but Um, yeah I still every year you know obviously I got to relive that story every year because we get to talking around the the dinner table every night with hunters and I have to bring up that story but I think that was probably one of the most unique hunting experiences I've ever had that felt like a near death experience whether it was or not you know
1: I mean hell my adrenaline's pumping just listening to you tell that story I mean that's something that uh, you know i would say it's a very very low percentage of 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 hunters have had an experience similar to that i'm sure that there's been plenty of guys who have encountered mountain lions uh and whatnot out in the back country but the way that all played out and you know to come you know five yards away and have that thing you know stop on a dime and just you know stare back and forth at each other and then just have her you know turn and and head back i mean that's Whew, that, that's a heck of a story, man, and, and I see why you tell that every year. I would too. Heck, I tell more than that.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. It was, uh, you know, I know after after that encounter, we kind of we laid on that rock and just stared at the sky for probably an hour before we probably had enough strength to kind of go on about our day. You know, just just had to take it all in. It was a it was a pretty interesting
1: experience for sure. Did you guys ever locate those uh, those bulls again on that hunt?
0: We know we ended up uh we ended up harvesting a bull. I think it was 2 days after that. But you know, when we we were we continued to hunt the same country that we had the mountain lion encounter in and uh you know, it was funny that going back in there the next couple of days, you know, in the cover of darkness with a headlamp on, like I never and still to this day this day I never feel as comfortable as I did previously when I go <laughs> through that country, even though I I understand the likelihood of having an encounter like that pretty slim, but I'm always, the hair on the back of my neck is always standing up. I was like, she's she's still here watching us, you know,
1: yeah. somewhere. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a bit of an uneasy feeling for sure. So, you know, you, you said it was kind of, um, you know, a little bit rough uh, getting things up and going. I mean, how long would you say it took, you know, uh, before – you guys really kind of found your groove um, with with the outfitting business
0: yeah i mean it was a it was a couple years for sure you know the the first uh the first year i mean we kind of had to beg borrow and steal some clientele you know and i would think they were as much as i hate to say this i think you know some of our first clients were probably um not allowed to come with any other outfitter in the area and we were the we were the next victims, you know? So, uh, you know, the first few years, I mean, you know, it it was, it was tough. We had a, you know, a limited number of clientele and then the clientele that was, that was showing up was, you know, hard to deal with. And, uh, it kind of, there was a lot of reality checks for me personally, whether I wanted to stay in the business or not. I'm like, man, if it's going to be this rough, like, I don't know that I want to do it, you know? Yeah. Um, we kind of, you know, hung with it and, uh, you know, had to get some help along the way from, you know, just asking other outfitters, other successful outfitters and stuff, kind of what, what we needed to be doing. And then, uh, you know, kind of revamped the website and started some other marketing opportunities and and methods. And then, uh, you know, ultimately kind of started getting some hunt hunters. And then one thing I quickly realized is if, you know, once we got our first couple of elk hunters that had points and, you know, had a good number of points, let's say, you know, back then they had to have four or five, six points or whatever it was. Um, You know, them guys were well connected. They were, they're, you know, some bigger guys in the hunting industry and go to a lot of expos and stuff. So the, you know, I guess our, the word kind of started getting spread around pretty rapidly after that. And then it kind of just,
1: picked up, you know? Um, yeah. So <clears throat> you mentioned, you know, kind of growing up, uh, uh, you know, in the ranching community and things like that. So, you know, how was it that, I guess you were kind of introduced to the hunting side of things or when did you get started with that? Yeah.
0: So, you know, my, my dad was, is, is probably at one time when he was younger, obviously, and, and raising myself and my brother, I mean, he was, he was what you would consider a, a hard, hardcore outdoorsman. I mean, it was, uh, everything we ever did as kids was, was hunting, fishing, trapping the whole, the whole kit caboodle, if you will. You know, yeah. it was, uh, I mean, we, you know, so the ranch that I spent a good portion of my childhood on was, you know, a large, uh, yearling operation in central Wyoming. And it was, you know, several hundred thousand acres um on our days off or or any time that he he would take the time for us to go do something i mean we we had the opportunity to he would load us up in the pickup and we would go we would stay on the ranch we hardly ever had to leave the ranch for anything you know we could we could go fishing um on a couple different lakes there's lakes all over the place we would go look for sheds somewhere it was it was all contained with the on the ranch but everything he did was you know, his job was outdoors and as well as his, his free time was outdoors. And I, I guess that kind of got embedded on me early on that, you know, my whole life evolved out of the, from the outdoors as well, you know.
1: Yeah. Isn't that such a great way to grow up, though? I mean, I feel like, <clears throat> you know, 20, 30 years ago, um, I mean, that's the outdoors was I mean, that's kind of what everyone did. Right. I mean, there wasn't all the distractions of cell phones and the internet and, you know, gaming systems and all that. And if you wanted to do something, you went outside, you found something to, to preoccupy yourself, whether it was, you know, finding a little stream or a lake and stand on the shore and and cast or, you know, tool around in the woods and build a fort or, or make a path or, you know, whatever you do as kids. And I find that, you know, through these, these conversations that I, that I get to have with people on the podcast is that, you know, more and more people grew up like that than, you know, back then, than, than nowadays. And it kind of makes me sad, right. That, that people, um, don't, you know, while the opportunities are still there, they're just not experiencing, experiencing, um, you know, the outdoors the same way that maybe you or I did as kids, you know, whether that's, you know, out West in Wyoming or here in Michigan, I mean, you know, the outdoors is such a, such a cool thing and there's, you know, the, the things that you can do is almost limitless out there, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, and it's a struggle now, you know, as I, I have my own kids and obviously I have the, my own desires for what I hope they, they enjoy in their life. So we, you know, it, we spend a lot of time in the outdoors with our kids, but I, I also recognize that, you know, my, my career's changed and I've, I'm in an office setting now, um, you know, and I don't, I don't work outside on a daily basis anymore, but, uh, you know, on our free time, I'm, I try to make sure that everything we do and whether they, you know, whether they're hunters or fishermen, that doesn't really bother me as much as I just want them to enjoy the outdoors, whatever that is, whether it's mountain biking or hiking or, or just exploring, I just want to make sure that they have the same loves for, love for an outdoor setting as as i do you know so and it's a challenge i mean you got you know work schedules and school schedules and then you know if you get your kids involved with any uh you know outside activities like sports or something you know man it's just there's not a lot of time left at the end of the day when you when you look back at it you know
1: yeah well no you're absolutely right there and you know that was uh, while i grew up you know, hunting and fishing and camping and, and doing all these things outdoors, I certainly hit a point, um, you know, probably in high school where, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to do those things as much. I wanted to, you know, hang out with friends. You know, I played sports in high school and, you know, like every teenage boy, I mean, then there's girls, right? There's all these other kind of distractions that you that pull you away from you know everything that you had had done you know kind of leading up to that point or or that you know kind of helped shape you into the person that you were at that point and then for me it was you know probably uh, mid-20s when I kind of fell back into it I started to have those aha moments where it was like man all the stuff that I really enjoyed doing as a kid um, you know I why why aren't I still doing those things right and Obviously, again, you know, w- once you get into college, I mean, those those distractions are, are kind of uh, heightened, let's say, and, you know, for me, uh, I went to college in a, you know, I grew up in a very rural area, and then I went to college in a much more urban area, so the opportunities um, weren't uh, kind of readily available for me, and then, you know, being away from my dad, who I did all of those things with when I was growing up, like, I didn't have that kind of support system where I could be like, you know, just call him, hey, dad, like, you know, after work or, you know, when I'm done with class this week, you know, what do you say we hit the woods? You know, it just, it didn't work out that way. Um, and then I, I came back to it. And as soon as you kind of, I dip my toe back into it with, um, with some fishing and some, and some whitetail hunting. I mean, then you just cannonball right back into it. And, you know, now that I have a couple of young kids myself, you know, I, I want to take that same approach that you just mentioned, right? whatever free time we have between school and work, like I want to, I want to get them outdoors. I want to, I want them to to enjoy that and and have that appreciation for it that, uh, you know, that we did.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And then, you know, on top of that, your role kind of changed. And I feel like, uh, I feel like not only do I need to get my kids outdoors, I got to, uh, I got to involve my dad as well. Now it seems like I got to, repay him for the opportunities he gave me um <laughs> you just see that with you know as as people age obviously their uh their desire and motivation to go do different things and and go fish every weekend or whatever it just seems like it starts um going down some so i, I feel like i'm always always coming up with some idea and and making sure i try to involve my dad and get him away from the, the work schedule and go and cast the spinner in the river
1: or something you know yeah yeah and i've got to imagine too for for your dad you know it's 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 experiencing things you know over again um you know like with with his grandkids with your kids but it's also got to be a little bit different for him too and, and i mean that in a good way where you know he there's maybe not necessarily um the pressure or the stress that comes from, you know, trying to get your own kids out there, but he can enjoy it a lot more, right? He can spend a lot more time teaching and just, you know, you know, teaching them how to perfect that cast or, you know, how to shoot a rifle or, you know, what, you know, what type of sign to look for if you guys are out just on a hike and, you know, shed hunting and things like that. I mean, I'd imagine if he's not having to do that, um, kind of as a career and just with, with, with his grandkids and, you know, even with his son that, um, it's it's probably a lot more enjoyable at this stage in life than maybe it was um you know in previous years
0: yeah and now if uh now if you get a big knot in the fishing reel really he just hands it back to me and i have to deal with it versus <laughs> him having to fix it back in the day you know yeah i mean you still
1: got to pay your dues right
0: <laughs> yeah
1: so you know we've we've talked obviously a lot about hunting and you know everything that that goes into to, to the outfitting business and, and a lot of your experiences there but on the conservation side of things um you know there's there's maybe only a handful of of different kind of guide services that are two percent certified um you know that that have made that commitment. Uh, both from a time and a financial um, standpoint, uh, to give back to conservation. So how was it, uh, Jerry, that you guys learned about 2% for conservation?
0: Yeah, so so interestingly enough, I, I kind of got involved on the more professional conservation deal, not through outfitting necessarily. It came from uh, my career in, in real estate um, where I started, you know, my eyes were kind of open A little wider I guess and I understand it or I've seen the need for uh you know some more involvement by the general public and I've seen an opportunity for for myself personally and as well as you know all my businesses to get involved with you know and and do something more I mean it you know the two percent um deal is something that I guess I kind of wear it as a badge. I mean, I, I'm proud to be involved with it. And, uh, and every day, it's just something that it's easy to hold myself accountable for, you know, every day I wake up and I'm doing something. I'm like, you know, I'm always kind of thinking of the, the 2% model and, and it helps me make sure that I'm, I'm being held accountable and in everything I do. Um, Cause I, I see the need, need for it. But, you know, I, I got involved with, you know, land conservation first. And that was through, you know, real estate. So, you know, my, my real estate careers, um, basically around, you know, recreational and ranch properties. Um, at the end of the day, you know, everything I know is, is came from an agricultural operation. Um, and in the West, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of hurdles for, for agricultural operations where, you know, the margins are tight and then you have, uh, a lot of succession issues where you know uh, inheritance taxes and and them kind of things are are issues that a lot of times are what creates the need to sell a sell a ranch and uh, sell the asset and then it's never the same ever again right um, so that's where my initial exposure came from and as I you know I started seeing as you know the West kind of changes and these places get developed and uh, you know if it, you take it out of a, a multi-generational ag operation you know and uh a lot of times you know the public access gets shut off and then uh, the property gets built up differently than you've ever seen it before and um so that was kind of the initial push i guess on a professional level to get involved in in the conservation and and ultimately you know i got i sit on uh the, the wyoming agricultural land trust board um and it's you know we It's primarily just, uh, conservation easements, um, on property. And then, and then obviously I take it a little bit farther and do some, do some other things where I make sure my involvement with conservation efforts is always, always very important on a year to year basis.
1: Yeah. And I love what you said about, uh, you know, wearing, um, you know, that, that kind of badge of honor, um, to be involved with, you know, not only 2%, but just conservation in general. Because I think that, you know, in my opinion, if if a whole lot more outdoorsmen, outdoors women, outdoor, you know, recreationists, if they, you know, wore that badge of honor the same way, I think our outdoors uh, would be a whole lot better place. Not to say that it's not right now, but I think... You know you'd have a lot more uh people working and kind of rowing in the same direction instead of uh sometimes you know kind of you know working against each other i guess
0: yeah it just seems like you know and that's the the downside even on the ag industry you you find is uh there's a lot of uh, separation from the general public and then you know like ag operators like you know uh someone living in downtown New York City doesn't really have a good in or a good knowledge base of what what occurs on a on a ranch in Wyoming nor nor do they occur or a lot of people even understand on on the sportsman side of things like you you know you see all these uh new uh laws being passed and stuff by you know the general population and it obviously affects sportsmen and and maybe agriculture but the downside is, is you know, the first thing we do as sportsmen or our agriculture operators is we point the finger at folks that, you know, they're affecting our ability to live our lives the way we want them to do. But at the end of the day, it's probably more so where they just don't understand, you know, the, the only information they had put in front of them is the information that made them go a different direction than, than we need them to go, you know? So I, I feel like you know part of my conservation efforts is i'm well positioned to make sure every person i touch in my life i kind of have the opportunity to get them on the same page as, as myself if you will
1: yeah i mean uh, the the spreading the word the the continuous uh education on the matter i mean that's what's that's what's critical because you know like you said being well positioned to to be able to speak to those different uh, areas um, certainly uh, gives you a, a very credible uh, voice based on your experience. And, you know, there's so much misinformation out there with, I mean, anything you want to look up, right? I mean, there's there, there's a lot of, you know, things being said about whatever the topic is that just are, you know, blatantly untrue. And to to have that um, you know, mindset for you to, to want to, you know, have these conversations, to educate people who, you know, just don't otherwise know any better. Uh, I think is critical, uh, for the entire conservation movement as a whole.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I mean, you know, the, and, and conservation, you know, what I guess it, it's easy, easy to, for me to define cons- conservation. Um, the the downside is you know even conservation's kind of getting a black eye at the mo- moment i mean you know there's you got this 35 30 by 30 stuff and uh you know it's not some of that stuff's not being well received in the general populace i guess and uh i think we got to be real careful on how we approach some of these projects in the future and make sure that the the right things are being portrayed out in the general public you know because um, at the end of the day especially when you get in the western U.S. you know people uh, people generally dislike the federal government and uh, um, they don't want the federal government to be involved with their their day-to-day activities any more than they already are and I think you know as far as like the land trust and uh, and some different like actual easement conservation easement oriented stuff like it's a uh, it seems like it's an uphill battle right now on on making sure that you know, we can still get some conservation efforts uh, accomplished without. Uh, at the same time, we're battling some of this other stuff that's going on. You know.
1: Yeah. So as as far as Turkey Track Outfitters is is concerned, what are some of the organizations that you guys are, are working with or are giving back to?
0: Yeah. So uh, you know, our, we we try to stick to uh, you know, I guess a more uh, Wyoming specific groups um you know like uh rocky mountain elk foundation um rocky mountain sheep foundation um the wyoming stock growers land trust is obviously a a huge one for us um we're my dad myself are also you know volunteer uh wildland firefighters for a a couple different regions here in wyoming uh but that's our primary focus is, is that and some and some 4H i donate a lot of uh, a lot of my time to some 4H programs like shooting sports and the archery's program it's uh, i guess my my biggest thing is 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 time is more important than money yep in my opinion because you don't you can donate all kinds of money to all kinds of different organizations on a yearly basis and i'm not saying that it's it's not money well spent but you may not see um the effects of that at a more immediate response i don't even know if that's the right way to say that but i don't see the effects immediately like i would i would normally see with you know when we're involved with uh like the 4 h shooting sports program for example i mean you got you got a captive audience of, of young kids that are um you know they show up it's not necessarily outdoor related i mean our practices are indoors but we have the opportunity to sit side by side with a, you know, a 10 year old kid and kind of get him excited about something where hopefully you could blossom that into something else where they might have an appreciation for the outdoors too, that they don't, they may not be getting at home. You know, their, their parents may not be outdoors oriented. Um, so that's where I guess our focus and my focus is more about just, just, giving back and more opportunities where I can actually touch somebody.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree. The, uh, the actual, um, act of, of volunteering your time. Yeah. There's usually whenever you're done and you walk away, you can, you can actually point to something, uh, that you accomplished, whether it was, you know, cleaning up trash or, you know, fence poles or, you know, goat surveys, um, or, you know, in in the case of like the forage, you know, teaching someone you know how to shoot a bow how to shoot a gun or you know a firearm and yeah that's there's a there's a certain level of, of pride and satisfaction that you get um when you're done actually you know doing that hands-on volunteering yeah so <clears throat> jared before I let you go here um i'd imagine you don't get a ton of time um to hunt actually for yourself um you know doing all the guiding and 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 things like that, but do you have, uh, I guess, any hunts yourself or, or any trips this uh, this coming year that uh, you're excited about or looking forward to?
0: Yeah, you're right. Uh, I I don't have a lot of uh, a spare time to hunt hunt myself. That's one kind of disadvantage of being in the the guide and, and outfitting business. Um, I do uh, make sure I I set aside a little bit of time every year. Like for example, my daughter last year killed her first turkey. Um, I'm hoping I'll get her out again this spring and, and, and harvest another turkey. Um, I, uh, fishing trips and then, you know, probably harvest a, a cow elk or something, but I don't, I don't travel, a, travel around and, and plan any real, real hunting trips. It's mostly kind of focused around getting my kids out and having their, ch- a chance to harvest something themselves
1: now. Yeah, hey, there's nothing wrong with that. Still making memories either way.
0: Yeah, I'm. I think my biggest hunting trips is I. I got pretty heavily involved in some competition shooting, so I. I tell everyone I harvest a lot of steel every year. That's about <laughs> I can take a weekend away and go and shoot a bunch of steel targets, and I harvested every species in the in the Western U.S. on a on a single weekend, and then I don't have to cook and clean them. So
1: <laughs> there you go. Well, hey, Jared, uh, you know, for, for hunters out there that are maybe, you know, sitting on some preference points or, uh, you know, looking for, you know, a turkey hunt or, you know, mule deer, or antelope, whitetail, whatever the case is, where can uh, they find you guys at? Yeah, so we're
0: on, uh, you know, our website's just uh, turkeytrackoutfitters.com. And then uh, my Instagram handle is W I O and uh, that's where you can find me pretty easily
1: okay right on well jared thank you so much for taking some time today man uh hopefully got you a little bit closer to the weekend and a little bit closer to turkey season coming up here
0: awesome well it was good talking to you you have a good rest of
1: the week all right you too jared take care take care see ya. yep All right. Well, thank you again to Jared for joining me on the podcast today. I would also like to thank the partners of the podcast, uh, Stone Glacier and Wild Rivers Coffee, as well as 2% for Conservation. And as always, if you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org, and see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop. I also encourage you guys to give 2% a follow on social media where they're going to post only uh, positive conservation-driven content in your feeds. So again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for Conservation, you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for joining me this week, everyone. Be sure to check out TheAverageConservationist.com. Stay up to date on all the latest podcast episodes, as well as pick up some merchandise, some gear, some hats, t-shirts, and sweatshirts to help support conservation as well. So as always, stay safe and remember that conservation starts with you.